Well, 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 book by book. And here we are in California, in Westminster Church in West Lake, in the beautiful Agoura Hills. And I'm Richard Buse, and I'm joined here by my colleague from London, UK, and that is Paul Blackham, Dr. Paul Blackham. And then we're joined by one of our best friends in the world, and that is Johnny Erickson Tada, whose home is here in California, very nearby, in fact, Johnny, and it's a delight to see you here today. Always good to be with you, friends. <laughs> we like doing Bible study. And what we're doing at the moment is Philippians, of course. We're coming to our third study now, our third program. And here we are in Philippians. Let's make it chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I think that's enough for us today. Of course, the overall theme seems to be that of the uh, citizenship that Christians are called to exercise um, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of the gospel of Christ. And today's theme is along the lines of what should our attitude be in that citizenship. So let me read, well, I'll read a few verses. I think verses 3 to 5 I'm going to select. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, writes Paul the Apostle, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same of, as that of Christ Jesus. So he's our model. That's what our theme is really in our study right now. Many people, Johnny, are highly confused, or they can be at least, about the wording of verses 1 and 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship from the Spirit, with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Um, what is Paul actually saying here? Well, we are one in Christ, so let's start acting like it. Because God is the one who gave us the consolation, the comfort of his love, the fellowship of his spirit, the affection and the mercy. God has given us so much. Should we not be unified in what he has given us? And besides, um, God did not wait around for us to get our acts together or to shape up before he extended to us his affection and his mercy. So why in the world should we expect it of each other? No, we are one in the spirit, Paul is saying, so let's start acting like it. That is the expectation. Mm. And that's a, a, okay. Let's take that on board at the very start of our study, and I think that's, that's important. And then as we're looking into this, verses 3 and 4, which I read at the start, Paul Blackham, are those words a little bit unrealistic or perhaps damaging a bit about um, uh, that, that part about in humility counting others better than yourselves and so mm. forth? I know that's the thing isn't it? I mean today often people say oh the biggest problem that people have is they don't love themselves enough. So Paul's advice here when he says oh yeah think of others as better than yourself it's so countercultural. And people say, oh, yeah, no, you have to love yourself. That's the core of your identity. It's completely countercultural because I was brought up to believe that, uh, you know, you must be, put yourself, take a back seat and put others first and mm. so forth, not be selfish. Now I'm told it is good to be selfish. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And so Paul, when he says this, some people say, oh, this is very bad advice, very damaging psychologically. But of course, that's so ridiculous. And first of all, the key thing to understand is we really find our identity when we discover identity in Christ. He loves me. That's the important thing to know. He accepts me. My own assessment of myself is that that's where the dangers come in. When I start to make my own judgments about myself, he will tell me the truth about myself, both the worst 
make me face up to all the, 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 the truth about the fact that I'm a terrible sinner, but he loves me. And mm. that's my the security and the, the truth and total acceptance. And that's the wonderful thing of the gospel. And Paul can say, I'm the worst of all sinners. He actually says that about himself. And that's how we all feel when we come to the cross and we, we really understand our sinfulness. We think, oh, I am the worst sinner there has ever been. And we think, and that, make, that gives us that humility. And we think, no, and, uh, others are better than me. And we, treat, we put their interests first and things. But it doesn't mean like, oh, oh, you know, I've lost all my identity. Because he doesn't say, I'm the worst of all sinners, and that's the end of the story. Worst of all sinners, as an example of that, that, that I'm, uh, Paul says he's accepted in Christ. And he, he says, oh, well, if he's accepted me, he can accept anybody. So Paul's not lost his identity, he's found his identity in mm, Jesus. Mm. You, Christ yeah. is the ultimate example and the ultimate expression of what true humility is all about. And we are never more like Jesus than we, when we humble ourselves before the Lord and before others. My husband, Ken, when he has to get up at two o'clock in the morning to turn me in bed, because as a quadriplegic, I can only lay in one position for so long. So every night, Every night for the 23 years we've been married, he gets up at 2 a.m., he turns me, and he does so with a good attitude. And, I, and that's why it's easy for me to look out for his interests before my own for the rest of the day, because I see how selflessly he lays himself before the cross, daily and nightly, taking up his cross and following the example of the Lord Jesus. That makes me, in turn, want to look out for his interests before my own. And that's a challenge for us because you're right, it's so counterculture. But God would have us to esteem others better than ourselves, promote others, um, let others get the recognition for the project, uh, make certain, certain they go first. It goes against our nature, but it is certainly reflection, reflective of the nature of Christ. Oh, and as you say, Christ is our supreme model, which of course is right here in verses five through to 11 that uh, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. And then off it goes into this terrific explanation of what Christ actually did to be the servant of all, stooping from heaven, stooping from the glory, to reach down to us it is as though we're at the bottom of a deep gorge. And then his work accomplished, we're coming back into the sunlight again at the end of, the, uh, of that little burst of, uh, of prose, which is so marvelous to read. Of course, theologians have said, let's, let's focus on the theology and uh, what, who this person Jesus is, which we can do. But actually, the purpose of it is to show this is the attitude of Christ and your attitude should be exactly the same. Would you like to say a bit more about that wonderful verses 5 to, five to 11, well, Johnny? I, I think what Paul said earlier, I wish he could just repeat himself or yellow <laughs> highlight it or, or underscore it because it is so true. If, if, if we are struggling to esteem others better than ourselves, First, let's go and see what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. I know there are times when my sin seems to overwhelm me, but then I think, oh Lord Jesus, your mercy is so great. Thank you for being so loving, kind toward me and showing me and extending me your mercy, which in turn, when I get a full picture of what Jesus Christ has done for me, then it is easier for me to be merciful to someone else. It is easier for me to esteem others better than myself because like Paul was saying earlier of the apostle, I too recognize myself as the chief of all sinners. So when we want to cultivate a spirit of humility, 
let's look at Christ on the cross and what he did for us. Actually, your books, you know, are full of all of this. I like all these books. You know, The Life and Death Dilemma, Johnny Erickson Tada. That looks like a really good book that people can take, especially uh, families. I mean, you do these family retreats when a whole family can go and uh, share a holiday with one of their disabled members. And it's, it's an, a and thing. I tell you what, we put into practice Philippians chapter two, verse four, everybody there at those family retreats is looking out for others' interests before your own. When you've got a disability in the family, you're almost forced to do that. But praise God, I think this is why he allows suffering like that in the midst of a family, so that we might learn by experience what Philippians chapter two, verse four is really all about. I saw a picture in uh, your center just uh, yesterday uh, with a picture of you bending over, talking with a little girl who had broken her neck at the age of three. And uh, broken your neck, you, you did that at the age of 17. She'd broken her neck at the age of three. And the care that was surrounding her, this person is going to be loved and treasured and helped on mm. as, uh, by the servants mm. of the Lord. It's wonderful mm. to see that. Well, it's, it's easy to esteem others better than ourselves when we look at the greater affliction of Christ on the cross and what his mercy secured for us. Mm. Mm. Paul, let me just change uh, direction for a moment or two. Are there any, when we look at these verses 5 mm. to 11, sometimes strange beliefs and even deviations and heresies have arisen out of uh, people looking at them and getting no. it wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think what happens when people lose the point of what the, Paul's teaching, which is what we've just been hearing about, then they start getting into confusion. And they'll say things like, um, oh yeah, Jesus was divine, then he Later, he ceased to be divine mm. and became a, just just human, not divine anymore. That doesn't say anything of the sort. You know, they come up with the theories like that, or they might say themselves something like, "He was found in appearance as a man." Oh, then they go to the other way and say, "He wasn't really a man. Mm. He only mm. appeared to be a man." Mm. They're like, "No, no, 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 no." They, they, you know, for instance, in that case. It's like, there he was be, with this glory that he had with the Father before the world was, and it was majestic glory. And if you, to see that glorious Christ before he became a servant and then afterwards again, you wouldn't look at him and say, oh, I wonder if he's God or not. You'd be like, oh, yes, of course, that's the Lord of glory. But then he, he lays aside that glory that he had, and he's there on earth, and someone would look at him and, and say, oh, he's just, he's just, he appears to be just an ordinary man now. And, and loads of people didn't uh, esteem him at all. And then we know, I love it in John, he says, now as he comes to the cross, glorify me now with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So he's saying, yes, I had that glory. I haven't got it now, but I'll recover that glory. It's, it's actually not complicated, these things, but sometimes people get... If they come at it and they're not sort of un, not submitting to the gospel properly and, and um, they sort of come at it with the wrong agenda, then make a mess of a hymn like this. I mean, you see, I think before in book, book by book, I've quoted Athanasius, who was what, a oh. gigantic theologian <laughs> yeah. and a student of scripture 1,600 years ago, Egyptian born and Greek trained. But uh, he answers the question that many people ask today, I can't see where Jesus fits in. Yeah, sometimes they say that. Mm. And uh, Athanasius said, the only system of thought into which Jesus Christ will fit is the one in which he is the starting point. God's starting point, right from the very beginning of the Bible, right through to the end of the scriptures. And if we can't take him as the 
the starting point of our thinking, then we should be like, well, we'd be like the man who's trying to do up his shirt buttons as I was doing this morning. And then you start with the wrong button. If you start with the wrong button, I mean, you may say, oh, I'll get it right in the end. No, you won't. <laughs> it won't make sense. And no history or life or eternity or the cosmos all around us, the meaning of life will not take on sense until we get the beginning right, which is Jesus Christ, ultimately. It has to be. Uh, thinking of Christ, Johnny, well, every, see, it ends up at that last little bit, that at the name of Jesus, that's verse 10, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to mm. the glory of God mm. the Father. Mm. It's a great burst. Hello, I mean, you know. <laughs> Will every knee actually bow before Oh my Jesus goodness, yes. Because Paul was just talking about the glory that Christ laid aside. At this point, everyone will see that the Father has given him that glory that he, uh, before his incarnation, had laid aside. And when that happens, when everyone sees that this God-man really did uh, provide the substitution for sin, and indeed this God-man was our high priest, is our high priest, that's when every angel in heaven, every demon, every disobedient man on earth, every obedient person on earth, all of creation will acknowledge his rightful place as ruler, sovereign They will be obliged ruler. to acknowledge They will that. confess, yeah. they will acknowledge, they will agree with. Yeah. They won't be, quote, saved. Not everybody's going to be saved. But everybody, and in fact, we know from the word of God that even the devil now acknowledges that, yes, Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. But at that point, the obedient and the disobedient, the demons and the angels will all acknowledge his rightful place as sovereign ruler. And whether they do that willingly or unwillingly, whether they do that happily or very reticently or painfully, mm -hmm. nevertheless, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. There'll be no dissentient voice at the end. Nope, not one. nope, not mm. one bit. Verse 8 it seems to bring us back, Paul, to the very center of it all, even death on a cross. Oh. Why was death on a cross particularly bad for the God the Son? I know. Sometimes uh, a modern person who just reads this and doesn't understand all the biblical background would say, well, that's not the worst possible death. You know, there's lots, of, they could, there's lots of worse things to happen. Not if we understand the Bible properly. Because in the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, we're told that that death, hanging on a tree, to die in that way, is to, is to die a God-forsaken death. That's under the curse of God. So Paul's saying, this is the, yeah. the, his obedience, the Son of God, the glorious eternal Son, was obedient absolutely without reserve. Because he might have said, okay, I'll lay aside my glory and live as a servant on earth for a while. He's like, no, no, more is required than that. It's, you must live a hard life of suffering. He goes, okay, I'll, I'll manage that. But that's where I draw the line. No, more is required. He has to die a death. He said, okay, I'll die a death, but surely no more. Yes, you have to die a God-forsaken death. And for him, the eternal son, who's only ever known the ultimate incredible intimacy of love with his father, that is the, the worst possible thing for him to lose, mm. that, that intimate love, total flow of love. Even that he has to give up and lay that down, even death on a cross, a God-forsaken death. And so really, as we've been hearing, the message is, if he will do that, 
we can't say, I'm prepared to go this far in following Jesus, but not, not any further. Right. We can't draw a line. No lines to be drawn. When we think that Jesus Christ was the most God-forsaken man who ever lived. Mm. Yeah. You know, the hair stands up on the back of our heads when we, yeah. when we hear that, mm. but it's true. And if Jesus Christ so humbled and emptied himself to that degree, made himself of no reputation to that extent, what should be asked of us, right? The supreme servant. That's verse 7. And as we end off, I mean, I have to say to us, anyone who's participating in this program, and you're a servant of God, I tell you what, in any new situation you enter into, maybe a new church or taking on a new Sunday school group or whatever, you cannot achieve a thing, not a thing, until you've proved your servanthood. That's a big choice and a big challenge for every single one of us. And Jesus Christ is our model. God bless you today. 